This is Passing Notes from the History of Education Society. Last episode, my conversation with Dr. Jody Burkett focused on one government's decision to charge overseas students more money. In today's episode, we're going to look at the other side of that equation, a government's decision to spend money on overseas students. My guest today, Dr. Anna Kent, studies scholarships provided by the Australian government for overseas students, focusing on the period from 1948 to the present. Her research looks at the intersections of international education and broader themes like race, decolonization, and global movement. Prior to graduate school, she spent a decade working in policy and management roles in international education. Throughout our conversation, Anna makes it clear that, although the policy outcome is very different from Britain in 1967-1968, many of the same geopolitical considerations guided the Australian government's decision-making. Overseas students always seem to be the focus of some messy politics, regardless of whether you are spending money on them or charging them. To find out how and why, let's jump in. Hello, Anna. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Thanks, Michael. I'm excited too. Thinking about a historical perspective, going to that date that you pegged as the start of your PhD project, 1948, Could you explain why Australia starts offering international scholarships at that point and sort of how are they initially thought about both in an Australian context, but then also in the contexts in the South Pacific that they're aimed at? It gets a bit complicated, but um, this is what I love about my PhD project, I suppose, in this sense. So the first scholarship scheme that the Australian government offered was called the Southeast Asian Scholarship Scheme. Lots of acronyms and names for scholarship schemes throughout my uh, PhD. <laughs> and the reason that uh, they called it that was it was largely offered to the to Southeast Asian nations. Uh, so this was a period of rapid decolonization in Southeast Asia and also a real fear in Australia of communism and the potential um, spread of communism throughout Asia and Southeast Asia. The other, I guess, domestic issue that was or domestic policy that was playing into this decision making was what was called the White Australia policy, which had been a policy, an immigration policy in Australia since Federation. There was a realisation or a recognition from the Department of External Affairs, which is now called the Department of Foreign Affairs, that that white Australia policy or the immigration restrictions that restricted immigration to Australia to largely white people did not play well in the Southeast Asian nations, particularly in the decolonising sort of um, ferment of, of the period. And the Southeast Asian Scholarship Scheme was in part an effort to placate um, Southeast Asian nations and a sort of an olive branch of sorts to say, well, here, have a few scholarships. You can come here to study. You can't move here permanently, but you can come and study and then return home. And that will be fine. And so that was in 1948. And Interestingly, the biggest scholarship in Australia's in Australia's conception of its history in international education, the Colombo Plan features 
as a much bigger uh, program. And it was in numbers much bigger, but it actually started after the Southeast Asian Scholarship Scheme. So first came the Southeast Asian Scholarship Scheme and then the Colombo Plan a couple of years later. And the other interesting thing about the Southeast Asian Scholarship Scheme was that it was offered to Pacific Island nations who were also going through less of a uh, an independence movement but were keen um, as mostly colonies of uh, mostly British colonies uh, to access Australian higher education there were no universities in the Pacific until the 1960s and so in that period the only way to get tertiary education was to leave and so uh, scholarships offered by Australia, New Zealand, the UK, and other colonial powers, as well as the United States, which you know, are they were they a colonial power? Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, that opportunity for further education could only be served by leaving. So, the scholarships were offered to um, to Pacific Island colonies as well, which was a little bit confusing for those colonies because they saw the title of Southeast Asian Scholarship Scheme and said, hang on a second, we're not from Southeast Asia. But the Australian government said, no, no, it's fine, you can, you can still apply. There weren't many awards, like it was sort of two or three awards a year for the first couple of years, so it was very small. Um, they actually did change the name um, quite quickly. After a couple of years, they changed it to the Australian International Awards Scheme. In light of this whole, well, it's not just Southeast Asia, it also reflected some um, internal, I guess, bureaucratic fights about where Australia should be concentrating its diplomatic and um, development or aid efforts. There was a push to support Pacific Island states. There was also a large cohort of people who wished to support or thought that it was most important to support Southeast Asia. There was also um, the issue of Korea was um, becoming um, a big geopolitical issue. But there was also um, African states who were decolonizing. Ghana features heavily as well as a place where many people in the Department of External Affairs felt Australia should be focusing attention because Ghana, in in part because Ghana was part of the um, the Commonwealth and there was a real view to um, supporting Commonwealth nations as they pushed into independence. And I would love to talk a little bit more about your methods, particularly your use of oral history, but you also mentioned at various places about using other audiovisual resources. I was wondering if you could talk about what those resources were and how they informed how you were able to write the histories that you do. I guess I was really fortunate that I worked on my project at a time where students and universities love to collect alumni stories. <laughs> um, and I've also um, been a very, the beneficiary of the project that my PhD supervisor was working on, looking at student alumni from Papua New Guinea who came both before and after independence. So I actually didn't do any oral history um, interviews myself. I was able to work with existing sources, which as a researcher is kind of, um, I guess, a bit of an easy um, trick. It made my life a little bit more easy, um, <laughs> fewer ethics <laughs> applications to put in. But certainly the open source data that you're able to access about students and students talking about their experiences is quite phenomenal, both in Australia and around the world, largely and particularly in modern 
times or you know in the in the 21st century with the use of video as a marketing tool and and alumni interviews as a tool of um, sort of promotion and marketing of universities and of scholarship schemes with the caveat that those interviews are often used as marketing so they're not going to give you a full picture but you do get a sense of people's um, experiences and and their lives. There's also the other, I guess, I was also the beneficiary of a larger Australian government program, uh, which is called the Global Tracer Facility, which was a a really big project or is a really big project tracing Australian government alumni or alumni who studied in Australia, mostly sponsored by the Australian government, tracing them uh, across the world and it's a huge project they've just done an enormous number of interviews and they've done market research with alumni and they've done focus groups and just a huge variety of different engagements with alumni and they've done some of that as a broad sort of sweeping what is the purpose of what has been the outcomes of Australian education or Australian scholarships but also some really targeted um Project. So one of the sources that I used was looking at scholars who came to Australia to study education-related courses and the impact that they've been able to have on return to Fiji. That was, a, um, I guess, a really helpful source. So I guess the later chapters of my thesis where I move from accessible archival material into, you know, things I, I have to rely much more on the grey literature, so government-produced documents or... or um, university-produced documents, things that I can't necessarily read with without scepticism or cynicism because uh, they are produced with a particular goal. Uh, except for I was very um, fortunate that um, a source that I used both in my master's thesis and my PhD was uh, some internal reports that what was then AusAid, the aid, stand, the aid part of um, DFAT, Department of Foreign Affairs, produced some quite in-depth reviews of scholarships in the late 2000s and I was able to use that. Um, it had been released through an FOI that a journalist had done. So because it had been FOI'd, it was freely available and thus um, I was able to, to use that as a source, which it created a huge amount of value to my own research. So I'm very thankful to that journalist who who was doing that story many years ago. Yeah, I would love to dig down just a little bit. You've mentioned a couple of times that like some of these sources are obviously quite pro scholarships, either because they're university marketing, or because they're government reports about, look at how good we are. I'm just wondering, in terms of using those to write your stories, how are you thinking about maybe reading against the grain or looking for the not so positive aspects within those documents? That's a really great question. And something that I find um, both as a practitioner and a scholar of scholarships, it's very easy to become very cynical about scholarships because because I look at them, you know, often from a policy perspective and looking at them, the human side sometimes gets lost or the human impact, but also not allowing myself to be won over by the human side. You know, it's all positive. It's all wonderful. It was great. This has changed my life and the lives of my children forever. It's hard not to get caught up in that. And I do find my cynicism is always tempered when I speak to people who are on scholarship or scholarship alumni who tell me all about their experiences. That does usually lessen my cynicism somewhat. But reading against the grain, I guess um, one of the things I was able to do, and it's kind of very 21st century, is Google is amazing. Reading a name, because I'm working with people who were studying in Australia across the 20th and 21st century, 
many of them are still alive and still professionals or have had professional careers. And so if I found a name in the archives, I was often able to trace back to that and find out what that person might be doing now. I found one of my favourite examples was a woman who studied in Australia in the 60s on a Commonwealth scholarship and she then moved, so she studied um, urban planning at the University of Sydney and then she, from Fiji, she moved, came here from Fiji, then she went to Hong Kong, then she moved to Canada and she had a very um, rich and community-driven life in Canada and she actually has an archive, documents about her in an archive in Canada. And I found this all through finding her name in the Fijian archives and then going sort of just Google search, find tracing her story back. And so that, I mean, it's kind of I always felt like they were a bit of a puzzle to put together, these stories, and some of them are positive. Sometimes the story in its full or these lives in, in their wholeness, I guess, are present in the archives. Uh, one of the stories of a student that studied in Australia that I use regularly when I'm doing conference papers and one that seems to resonate really strongly and crosses across a lot of the issues that we talked about earlier about why Australia offered scholarships in the 1940s. So this this man was from Papua New Guinea but his parents were Chinese and he was born in Papua New Guinea in Rabaul but he studied for his matriculation so his final years of schooling in Australia and then applied to go to the University of Sydney under a Commonwealth Scholarship Scheme, which was a, a domestic scheme offered to Australian students. But this was at a time where Papua New Guinea was a territory of Australia, so it was actually part of Australia. But he was told he was not eligible because he was from Papua New Guinea, which was not part of Australia, according to the people offering the scholarship. It was very confusing and and just an amazing sort of bureaucratic nightmare that this man, uh, Cyril Chan, had to kind of negotiate. He ended up being able to get a Commonwealth scholarship, but it was one of the ones that had been allocated to New South Wales rather than one that had been allocated to Papua New Guinea. There was no allocation to Papua New Guinea given. But he did study. um, He kept in touch with the minister, the man who had been minister for territories at the time, so internal territories rather than external territories, Paul Hasluck. And so there's letters in the um, archive between Cyril Chan and Paul Hasluck or Paul Hasluck's representatives. Um, So you can see his experiences playing out and there's letters and there's also newspaper clippings in there. So you can see the different aspects of his story And it's just, I mean, his is a story of bureaucratic nightmares, but he does manage to to complete an arts and law degree and he returned home to Papua New Guinea and practiced as a lawyer. So there is, a, I guess, a successful outcome, but he had to negotiate so many hurdles, the white Australia policy, his parents were, his position was complicated because his parents were from China, not from Papua New Guinea, but he had been born in Papua New Guinea. And so his citizenship status was unknown or not unknown, but sort of uncertain because even as a, if he had been a Papua New Guinean resident or he even if he had been born in Papua New Guinea, the citizenship status of Papua New Guineans at the time was, was complicated by the fact that they were in Australian territory and yet not really uh, Australian citizens. So his story is one of those amazing elements of my thesis that really intersect across so many of the different aspects that we talked about earlier, you know, the white Australia policy, 
Australia's relationship with Pacific Islands, but also in particular Papua New Guinea and, and how those played out in the lives of individuals like Cyril Chan. I mean, it's so interesting to hear those reflections because it makes it really clear why your historical work intersects so well with your practitioner work. And I'm wondering, have you had the opportunity in that work to bring any of these realizations from your historical work about a need to have a more flexible policy or, you know, the sort of understanding of how people's lives are complicated? Have you seen any opportunities to bring that back into your day-to-day work? One of the outcomes of my thesis was that Australian scholarships between now and 1948 or 2018 and 1948 are essentially the same program. There has been differences and, you know, it is different, but we've had scholarships since 1948 and we've had iterative change across that period, across that 70-something year period. But there has not been too many points along that, that timeline where the Australian government has stopped and said, hang on a second, let's have a look at this design. Let's have a look at why we're doing this and how we're doing this and how we should could do this better. And there have been a couple of those points, but not many. And I would argue that the current program that we have now is very similar to a program that was started in the 1990s. And I think that so much has changed in that time. But the idea I once actually said in a meeting with a whole lot of scholarship people from both the Department of Foreign Affairs and other universities and I was there as sort of a (laughs) non-aligned expert and I said you know this was pre-pandemic realistically what we should actually be thinking about doing is like pausing the scholarships for two years and totally redesigning the project and the, the whole thing and thinking about it differently and I was essentially laughed out of the room they really did not like that idea at all so that the I guess that that iterative nature is helpful to governments and has been because they're always there. They're always there to be relied upon. They're always there to be promised in diplomatic or development context. You know, would you like a couple more scholarships for X or Y for that handshake, for that treaty, for that deal? And scholarships are used in that way and have been used in that way for you know, for more than the period of Australian Australian scholarship history. And they were particularly used like that in the Cold War. And it looks like that's pos- positively ramping up. Again, I noticed um, this week in Australia, the Solomon Islands um, has agreed a treaty with China. It's a defence treaty of sorts. And Australia has been quite shocked by this announcement in part of the description from the Solomon Island government they said you know we have student China is taking students to China to study and so that that role of education in that defense diplomacy geopolitical conversation is it was like the third paragraph of the press release from the Solomon Islands government was about students going to study in China so it's huge in the minds of um, so many countries and it, it's, it's a tool that gets played all the time. Yeah. And I would love to ask you the reverse question now, which is how do you see your work in this field influencing how you've approached your historical research? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I come to it with, I don't think I could have written the thesis that I wrote or, or do the work that I do without the understanding I have of the nuts and bolts of how it actually works. So I've 
you know, worked inside an Australia Awards program. And that gives me a literacy, I think, that if I hadn't done that work, I wouldn't have. So I talked earlier about the grey literature, so reading government documents and, and internal scholarship documents. I don't think that they would make as much sense to me if I didn't have that experience. My supervisor at several stages during my PhD did tell me to stop writing my thesis like it was a report. So sometimes you can fall too far to one side. But I think that that experience means that I, yeah, I have an understanding that I wouldn't have had if I had just gone straight, if I was just a scholar, you know, an academic looking at it from, I guess, a more distant position I don't think I would have that same engagement or understanding of what I was looking at. And I wouldn't be able to connect with it on the firm ground that I feel that I'm on. Well, I think that's a lovely place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It was really great to get to hear more about your research. Thanks so much. Passing Notes is a production of the History of Education Society UK. Our social media manager is Elena Rossi, and our executive producer is Heather Ellis. This episode was written and produced by me, Michael Donne. You can find a transcript of this episode, as well as more information about our events, publications, and conferences at our website, historyofeducation.org.uk.